You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Today we're sharing the audio from a live web broadcast in which we announced the finalists in our Strongest Town March Madness competition. Chuck Marone hosted and asked representatives from the two finalist towns a series of questions about their strength, resilience, diversity, and more. Once you finish listening, please visit strongtowns.org slash strongest town to vote for the strongest. Voting closes on Sunday, April 3rd at 11 p.m. Central, and we'll announce the winner on our website on Monday, April 4th. Here's the podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Uh, Welcome to the uh, live web broadcast of the championship round of our Strongest Town contest. We began this contest at the beginning of March uh, with 16 different cities across the United States. And in the intervening uh, weeks, you have voted, you have selected, you have chosen two to be our final two in the final round. Now, going to the final round, we had uh, Hoboken um, versus uh, Sandusky and Rachel. I want to bring you in here now. Let me introduce uh, Rachel Quid now. Rachel's our communications specialist at Strong Towns, and you have been kind of the person organizing this whole event. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the uh, the Hoboken versus Sandusky. Where did we end up with that one? Yeah, it was uh, it was both of these were pretty close races. Um, I know that there were uh, representatives from these towns that were campaigning very hard. Um, one of our uh, strong towns writers, Andrew Price, lives in Hoboken, and I saw a photo of him hanging out posters in his town to try to get people to vote for this. So. There's been a lot of enthusiasm, which is exciting. Um, the final vote percentage came down to Hoboken getting 62% of the vote and Sandusky getting 38%. So well done, everybody. Um, yeah, this has been really exciting, and thousands of people voted. All right, on the other bracket now, we had Carlisle, Pennsylvania versus Holland, Michigan. Uh, I interviewed both of those two last week for our or early, yeah, last week, ran earlier this week for our final four. Uh, two very exciting places in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the northern kind of, uh, you know, working class part of this country. Tell me how that round uh, ended up. Yeah, that one was even closer. Um, we ended up with Carlisle, Pennsylvania, getting 57, and Holland, Michigan. So, again, well done, everyone. And now we're at an East Coast showdown with Hoboken, New Jersey versus Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So, Rachel, before we, get, before we get to our two contestants, can you talk just a little bit about the tournament, the response? Uh, I know that this has kind of exceeded our internal expectations of, of what would happen. But you've been the one out talking to the, the local newspapers. You've been the one kind of fielding questions from people around the country. What has been the response and what is, you know, what, what has that kind of told you about these cities around the country? Yeah, I was really surprised when we started this 
this contest, um, we kind of just thought, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, we like this idea, but who knows if people are going to actually put in the time to fill out an application and everything. Uh, about a week before the due date for the applications, we only had maybe 12 submitted. Uh, and one of those was like a joke application. So <laughs> it was really only 11. Uh, and then I came back from a vacation and it was the due date and magically we had like almost 30 applications. So um, from towns all over the country too. I guess in my mind I had assumed that there would be like a lot of East Coast towns and we got the East Coast showing of strength here at the end for sure. Um, but we had towns all over the place, Texas, California, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Florida, um, even some places where I noticed some skepticism from commenters uh, and people responding on Facebook and Twitter and things saying, well, how could there be a strong town in Florida? Um, you know, I just thought that was just cul-de-sacs and huge McMansions everywhere. Um, but no, you know, it turns out there's some good things going on in places all over the country. So it's been really exciting to be able to hear these stories and see the different ways that, you know, a really tiny town, which has, you know, maybe just 20 stores on a one block Main Street, but they're still, you know, excited and doing good things versus, you know, Hoboken, which basically just feels like a part of New York City um, and it's like very dense and um, yeah, a different, different feeling for sure. Um, but yeah, the diversity has been exciting and it's good to see all everybody getting excited about um, I, celebrating. I think, I think for me, the kind of astounding thing has been that we've had almost 30,000 different votes <laughs> in this contest, 30,000 different people that have logged in and have, you know, looked at the photos, read the uh, descriptions that people provided, listened to the podcasts and, and provided their feedback and their vote. So this is not something that has been just a small group of people deciding. This has been literally tens of thousands of people around the country weighing in that have given us these these final two here, uh, mm -hmm. Hoboken and Carlisle, which we'll get to in a second. Um, I want to bring in Jason Schaefer for just a second here. Jason is our member support specialist at Strong Towns. Jason, I, I, I want you to walk through a little bit today what we're offering for people who are watching this live. Uh, people get to vote and to ask some questions. Uh, the vote's going to be a non-binding thing, right? Why don't you kind of walk us through how some of those things are going to happen? Sure. Um, on your on your screen, you'll see a, a little chat icon. Um, you can use that to kind of chat during the webinar. Um, there's also a question mark icon, which you can use to ask questions. Um, so we'll be taking questions and answering those. Uh, and then as well, uh, I'm going to release a poll in a bit here. Um, asking asking you, you know, who who are you planning on voting for in this championship round and that's going to be non-binding but it, you know just be kind of fun to see what people here on the webinar are, are thinking yeah and, and so we'll post the, the final voting form on our website yeah all right and so um the questions people can type in their own question when we get done with uh with our you know really hard tough grilling here uh we'll switch over and take audience questions right jason Exactly. Okay. Let's uh, let's get to our two contestants then. Uh, I'm going to start with with Hoboken uh, and Phil Jonet. Phil uh, has been a longtime member of Strong Towns. Him and I actually got to meet when I was in New Jersey a while back. Uh, Hoboken was uh, I, I'm I'm not going to call them the the favorite of the tournament, but certainly in terms of enthusiasm. 
uh, Andrew Price, uh, one of our contributors, uh, the Australian from Arkansas who <laughs> chose to move to Hoboken because he, he wanted to live there, uh, been pretty insistent that this was the, uh, the favorite going in. I don't know if I would agreed with that, but uh, it's not surprising to me to see Hoboken in the finals. Uh, Phil Jonet, welcome to uh, the championship round. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Chuck. I appreciate it. Hey, where are you at today? And talk a little bit about, you know, what you do for a living. I'm in Midtown Manhattan at my office, and I am an engineer working for a large uh, infrastructure company. And so I've always been interested in towns and cities and infrastructure. So. Now, how did you get uh, roped into being the person mm -hmm. on this particular broadcast, speaking on behalf of the, the 50,000 people of Hoboken? Well, I was interested in signing up from the beginning, but Andrew Price did push me and mm -hmm. suggested, Phil, you really need to get Hoboken in. Make sure you finish that application. And so I did. And uh, I had a few people from City Hall, uh, Ryan Sharp and Chris Brown especially, who helped me out uh, with the, just the write-up and, uh, and gave me access to the city's Flickr account for photos. But I did not, otherwise I'm the only technical member of this team. If you were gonna describe Hoboken to the, the viewers here today, people who have not been there and not seen it, who, what would what would be the way that you would describe it? Hoboken is a small, dense city. There's over 50,000 people living in just over one square mile. And so it's very walkable. And it was all built in the pre-war time, even before World War I. Uh, we had 70,000 people living here in 1910. So it's been it's been a established city for a long time. How'd you get to work today? I take the Port Authority Path Train, which is a subway that runs from Manhattan to New Jersey, and it takes it takes uh, 15 minutes. It leaves every five minutes at rush hour, and uh, it's very convenient. It's not part of the New York City subway system, but it is a uh, it is a subway running underneath the Hudson River. All right, Phil. I'm going to come back to you in, in a minute with a few questions. I want to get to Brenda Landis in Carlisle. Carlisle is a, a city of about 19,000 in the middle of Pennsylvania. And I have to say, I, I've kind of fallen in love with it a little bit. The applications were great. Oh, yeah. The, the people there have been exciting. And we have the number one meddler from uh, Carlisle, Brenda Landis, with us today. Brenda. Welcome so much. Congratulations on making it to the championship. I'm so happy to see you here. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Carlisle. Tell us, oh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about Carlisle. Uh, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about you, who you are and, and, and what you do and, and how you got roped into being the person on this broadcast today. Okay. Um, I'm Brenda Landis, and I work in the, Dick, um, I work in the Dickinson College Media Center, hence Dickinson. Uh, I'm a multimedia specialist, so my day job is very technological, academic. I help students make videos and podcasts. And um, But I live about five blocks from here, and I love my neighborhood, and I love Carlisle, and I 
and I'm always trying to look at ways to make it a better place. And that's obviously coming from someone that does not have the deep pockets and, um, and all of the resources, but what I've been trying to do is uh, connect with as many people that do have the know-how or the resources and sort of move from there. For people that have never been to Carlisle, give us a little overview and description. How would you how would you describe it to people who have never been to your place? We are uh, a very historic little town, um, like you said, 19,000 uh, residents or so. Um, I think the, the one thing that I like to stress about the town is that uh, a lot of towns have one thing that everyone thinks about. And maybe everyone has one thing that they think about our town, but it's not the same thing. We have three large educational institutions, Dickinson College, Dickinson School of Law with Penn State, um, the Army War College. We have uh, huge internationally known car shows. Um, so it's a small, beautiful, historic town with a thriving downtown. Um, but other people know it for you know, the Latorte stream that they come and do fly fishing on. So I think that there's lots of little hidden, secret, wonderful places and everyone has their favorite part of Carlisle. So when you drive through, you think that it's a lovely, small little village, um, but there's lots of special places to discover. You, uh, you said you live five blocks from the college. You get to walk to work today? Absolutely. It's a beautiful day in Carlisle. Yeah, so I <laughs> walked in at 7.50 this morning and said hello to all my neighbors as I go through. It's part of my, my daily jaunt. That's beautiful. Well, I'd like to switch back to Phil here. And what I want to do, just to give our audience a little bit of a sense of the strong town's nature of your communities is ask you a, a few questions off of our strength test. And I want to start with the first one. The first step in our strength test is to take a photo of your main street at midday. And the question posed is, would that photo show, show more people than cars? And so, Phil, I, I want to ask you, what, what, is, what would you consider to be the main street in Hoboken? And how do you think it would rank on that strong town strength test? Uh, Washington Street is the main street of Hoboken, and it's a very busy multimodal street. We have, um, we we actually are doing a large uh, upgrade of the of Washington Street, and the some of the statistics that they put out said that there was 18,000 um, pedestrians every day on the street. And I think it was 12,000 uh, buses, uh, I'm sorry, bus riders, and about 8,000 um, individual cars. And then you also have a mix of, of bikers and other private buses as well that travel along the street. Brenda, I'd like to switch over to you and, and, and start with the, the same question. Uh, if you went to your main street and took a picture at midday, would there, would there be more people or would there be more cars? What, what is your main street and how do you think it would do on that test? So our main street is High Street. We actually have two main streets, High Street and Hanover. Um, the cross section of those two streets is uh, known as the square in Carlisle. Um, so down High Street, just two blocks from the square is where I am at Dickinson. So you 
especially get a lot of traffic from the students. So absolutely, um, in between classes, you see tons of different people coming through. At the square, um, you have the uh, Cumberland County Courthouse, so there's constantly people going in and out of that, as well as um, different you know, restaurants and, and um, shops and things downtown. Um, although it's not directly at noon, one day out of the week, right there at the square, at the, the church across from the courthouse, we have our um, farmers on the square farmers market. And again, um, it's a thriving space that there's, uh, you know, lots of pedestrian activity, bikes, walkers. Um, so I would definitely say that uh, there are, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's a constant flow, but it upticks and goes down. And yes, there uh, are plenty of times when you go through downtown right at lunchtime and you will see many more people than cars. Not necessarily during a car show weekend, but um, <laughs> you know, that's also something that we love in our own way. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I wanna stick with you, Brenda, and I wanna go to the second question on our strength test. It goes like this, if there were a revolution in your town, would people instinctively know where to go to participate? So let's say that, you know, there's a there's an event, people are gonna gather. What's the natural gathering uh, spot in your community, intuitive to most people? That is absolutely uh, the square. And there has been a revolution in Carlisle. It was the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794 when our president, Washington, showed up um, uh, over, some people were upset about it, whiskey tax. Uh, so that is the, the cross-section of our town. That is where the farmer's market is. That's where the courthouse is. That is definitely the central area. And I think that um, everyone would know that any sort of important activity or information would definitely be in that space. And there's a lot of space to sort of spread out in that area. Perfect. Phil, how about you? If the revolution comes to Hoboken, are, are, the, are the people there going to know right where to go? Well, there's a series of small parks located throughout town that people would congregate at. It's with 50,000 people. You wouldn't fit them all in one square. Um, but Church Square Park and, um, and Columbus Park are, are two of the, the larger parks that people would go to. Um, in addition, Washington Street, I'm sure everybody would be there uh, with whatever tools they needed for the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Phil, let me stick with you. Um, I'm going to ask you a technical question, and I, I don't expect you to know the technical answer to this, but I, I kind of want your impression. Uh, the third strength test is imagine that your favorite street didn't exist or was destroyed. Could it be rebuilt today in, in a way that makes it your favorite street uh, with the regulatory approach that the city has? So let's start by identifying one of your favorite spots in town and then give me your impression of how you think Hoboken uh, would do in recreating that street today. Garden Street is one of the most beautiful streets in Hoboken. Uh, it has uh, all small, brownstone buildings uh, of different eras and, and a, a significant number of trees that are uh, mature. But the Garden Street is always turning over uh, with new residences being built and old ones being gutted. Um, the, it is possible to rebuild 
um, in the same way. Um, unfortunately, we do see a lot of the the new buildings being built are giant, uh, large, large block developments that are extremely large and, sh and do change the character of town. And that, that bothers some people um, a good amount, but we're working that out. Let me switch over to you, Brenda. Um, again, I'm not looking for you to necessarily be an expert on, on zoning ordinances and what have you, but what is your favorite street in town? And what is your impression if that street were, were gone uh, and had to be rebuilt or if someone wanted to build a similar kind of street, how easy or difficult do you think that would be in Carlisle? Well, my favorite street is not necessarily what everyone else would say is their favorite street. My favorite street is the street that I walk every day and I say hi to my neighbors every day. So I like Northwest Street. Um, I would say a lot of times if you're looking for like the, the quintessential cute colorful street, uh, Pom uh, West Pomfret Street is sort of our arts district. But either way, um, I think that yes, you absolutely could uh, build again. And um, as I'm, you know, that's the neighborhood meddler in lots of things. I know enough about uh, <laughs> zoning and um, some of the infrastructure. So we have uh, uh, these two sites or three sites actually, factory sites that have um, stopped being factories. And so they're being redeveloped and there's been tons of work looking at how those should be developed and specifically making sure that they blend into the fabric of the rest of the neighborhood. So it doesn't look like some random huge you know, housing complex gets popped up. So, I mean, there's been a lot of back and forth and, you know, a lot of heated discussion, but I think that the, the borough has uh, worked hard to try to find the best mix of um, redeveloping that. So they've done a mixed use infill uh, plan that they're trying to advocate to get more um, developers to actually develop one. So I think that absolutely that we could, we could redo a street and make it look and seem and feel the same. All right. Kids walking to school. You, you, you've talked, Brenda, about the, the colleges and the universities and, and the things there. I know you have a, a, a lot of kids in elementary schools. I, I'm wondering, are kids able to walk to school? And is that something that requires a lot of adult supervision and people fret over? Or is that just a natural part of living in Carlisle? Um, I think it's a natural thing in Carlisle. I have a first grader and a fifth grader and they walk home from school every day. Um, they walk about not quite a mile, like 0.9 you know, of a mile. Um, and they have safe routes to school. They have um, three different crossing guards at three different intersections. So I can't say that every street that they're crossing is tiny and small and you know, quiet. There are a couple of streets that are also um, you know, state routes. And so uh, they have um, designated crossing guards and crosswalks um, and uh, my kids, I trust them completely. The first couple times I made sure I was with them and getting them, um, but they are not alone also. There's tons of other kids walking and um, there are uh, four different um, elementary schools in town. And I know that each one of them has a, a large group of walkers. Phil, one of the photos that you guys submitted that was just fantastic was of these kids walking to school. And it, it, it was a really, I think, powerful image. Talk a little bit about kids and their ability to walk to school in Hoboken and how safe people perceive that and, and how frequently that's done. Well, there's, 
there's three elementary schools in town and uh, there's no busing of children. So those, those kids all have to get to school and home and to the park. Most of the schools don't have their own park either. They may have a small amount of playground equipment uh, located close to, the par close to the school. But I was doing some volunteering in college at one of the local charter schools. And we would take the kids after school to the park and we'd walk two blocks uh, every day. And so I don't have any children myself, but uh, it seems like it, everybody gets by all right. I want to pause here for a sec and just remind the viewers that uh, if you're logged in, uh, you are, are open to not only vote in our straw poll here on which of these two you uh, think should be our strongest town in America, but uh, also to submit your own questions. We're going to get here in a little bit to your questions for these guys. Uh, before we do that, I want to, Phil, ask you um, ab about ge different generations living in the neighborhood. One of the uh, keys in the Strong Town Strength Test is, are there neighborhoods within your community, not necessarily every neighborhood, but are there places in your community where three generations of people can all live within walking distance of each other? So can we support young families or young professionals? Can we support young people? Can we support you know, middle-aged people who have different needs in life? And then in the same neighborhood, can there be elderly people uh, who also find that they you know, enjoy living in that neighborhood? Absolutely. Um, Hoboken has a wide range of apartment types, but nearly everything is apartments. So when you're looking at the considerations of older adults, uh, you're thinking about elevators and wheelchair access. We're not thinking about, um, you know, ma yard maintenance. So because, because it's a city with, um, with apartments, it's, it's a different consideration than, than a type of town that has an even larger mix of potential uh, housing types. But there are uh, apartments large and small. Brenda, I'd, I'd like to ask you the same question. When you think about the neighborhoods in Carlisle, is there a neighborhood or are there multiple neighborhoods where people of different generations could all live within walking distance of each other? Absolutely. I think all the neighborhoods in Carlisle have that, um, that trait. So. Uh, there are different housing styles, sizes. So there's some very small houses, you know, under a thousand square feet. Um, and there's a bunch of larger ones, but even, you know, I know that my neighbor across the street, um, her daughter, who's in her forties now, she lives, you know, three blocks uh, right down around the corner. Um, and uh, especially in my neighborhood, it, it definitely is a place where a lot of families continue to stay in that neighborhood and then they'll maybe rent, um, you know, after they move out. But there's a lot of uh, multi-generational fa uh, family connections in my neighborhood. And so um, 100% yes. And, and the nice thing also is that um, the different neighborhoods, it's, it's not just one price bracket. So it's not pricing people out. So even, um, you know, if you are on a subsidized income, you can definitely still find some some housing in Carlisle and, um, you know, live close to all the amenities. When I interviewed both of you for the Final Four competition on the podcast, you both talked about food and eating and, uh, and the great, you know, different mix of restaurants and things that were available in your cities. I, I want to start with you, Brenda, and ask about locally produced food. Uh, 
if if I were to come to Carlisle and I wanted to eat for a month, nothing but locally produced food, is is that would that be an a viable option for me? One hundred percent, yes. Uh, oh, I lost well, you. Can talk that. a little bit about. Oh, talk a little bit about the local food scene and, you know, what what my ability to eat locally would be like if I lived in Carlisle. So we are in the Cumberland Valley in between um, uh, the two mountains, North and South Mountain. And in here we have so much great agriculture. We're also right next to um, Adams County, which has tons of um, orchards. It's one of the you know highest apple producing areas. So we have this wonderful array of different farms and um, locally produced agriculture, you know, vegetables, meat, uh, dairy. Um, and, and so not only can you go to the farmer's market, obviously I know a lot of towns have farmer's markets, but um, this is a, a local farmer's market, as in you have to be within 50 miles um, as a, to be a vendor there. So when you go to our farmer's market, you know that these people have, um, have created their, you know, grown or, you know, baked their bread. Um, nearby. Um, occasionally there's a guest vendor, but the core vendors have to be local. And all um, there's been a large push, obviously, in the past couple uh, years, especially that a lot of the restaurants in town are making use of this incredible resource that we have. So um, I can go over to the restaurant called the Whiskey Rebellion, and at the bottom of the menu, it lists all the different farms and all the different places where they're getting stuff from. Brick and Bruges, Cafe Bruges, both of those restaurants, same thing. Um, and even the places that I don't think people consider, I go to a little diner called John's Diner. It's been around forever. It's, again, one of the Greek families in town. Um, it's no frills, but uh, I asked them one day about where they get some of their food. And yes, they still they get some of their meats from the local butcher. And so even the places that aren't sort of the high, fancy places that some people are considered, they still are sourcing things locally. Um, and so a lot of times just asking can actually make this wonderful conversation and learn more about the place that you're in. So for me, like I live here and I'm still learning. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, Phil, um, I want to eat locally in Hoboken. How, how, how difficult of a task is that to do? Well, lo local eating in Hoboken revolves around the restaurant scene and the, the food products that are made here. So we, we have three farmers markets a week, um, actually four now. Um, that that have that bring in food from from around the New Jersey, Pennsylvania, upstate New York uh, area, but there's no farms uh, within 10 miles of us. So we're talking mostly about what what the restaurants and um, and other food places produce themselves. So we have a number of great bakeries and um, and companies that make fresh bread, and they serve all the local delis. I specifically mentioned the local delis to you, Chuck, on our podcast. And right, there's, right. there's 11 or 12 um, place, uh, Italian delis that make their own homemade mozzarella inside the shop. And uh, there's a mutz fest every year there, where they compete against each other of who makes the best mozzarella cheese. And it's really, it's really fun to get involved with that part of the community. Um, there's, there's now a couple of people brewing beer, so we have a homebrew and chili cook-off as well. So those are some fun food-based activities that we have 
in town. Jason, I, I want to head over to you here for a sec. I know we've got some questions from some of the people who are watching this live, and I want to give you a chance to, to share some of those. Is there one you want to pick out of the pack? Yeah, you bet. Um, so I thought this was a good question from Christopher. Uh, he wants to know, uh, how do residents get involved in their neighborhoods um, and in the, in the community uh, in general? Well, let's start with Brenda, the neighborhood meddler. Um, Brenda, <laughs> how do people get involved in their neighborhoods? You, you're kind of the poster child for that. So uh, tell us your story a little bit, and, and what have you seen other people do? Um, I think that uh, Carlisle is, is very engaged as a, as a community individually and as you know neighborhood groups and for me personally I uh, when I when we bought our house um, I love our neighborhood but there were also a couple things that I thought you know could be improved in it um, and so I started with this neighborhood park that's literally a half a block from my house was it um, completely run down no but I just it hadn't um, had you know, a lot of upgrades recently. So all I did was start asking, like, well, you know, because there were some other parks in town that had um, had upgrades and other neighbors had worked with, uh, worked to get them renovated. So I have been an advocate to get more neighbors involved um, and not just involved, like, oh, please help me, but get people's perspective. So I understand that not everyone can come to a meeting. I am going to way too many meetings, but, um, but I want people to feel like they have uh, the ability to help sculpt their space. Um, so as we were looking at that renovation, we had lots of meetings, but more like conversations with neighbors that have lived there a long time. What is good? What is bad? What do you want? Um, and and as that has gone on, you know, especially with the redevelopment of these factory sites, there have been larger meetings or, you know, working sessions, again, asking people um, what they want to see or how they can get involved. Um, and for me, one of the things that I think that I take on and not and I don't expect everyone else to do it, but I do have a little bit of flexibility to attend some of these sessions and the the papers will kind of give a synopsis of what happened at these meetings or at these sessions. But I take copious notes and tons of pictures and I post them out on our blog. So the people that can't come have a are well informed and then they get more in, invested and they um, you know are interested in doing more so last thing I'll say is uh, this not this weekend but the next weekend on the 9th um, we have an event in my neighborhood in conjunction with other churches and other orgs so it's not just one group doing it it's neighbors helping neighbors we've sourced about 25 different projects from residents we're going to clean up neighbor we're going to clean up backyards we're going to clean up the park so it's it's not just a cleanup, it's about sculpting your, your space and, and allowing your voice to be heard and your opinions. What's the reaction in Carlisle to, to neighborhood advocates? Um, you know, does, does the city embrace them? Are people leery of them? Is there a, 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 you know, a, a cooperation back and forth? What's the, what's the attitude towards people who step up and get involved? Um, they are very open to having us uh, involved. Um, I think the main thing is, is that a lot of times, you know, with with boroughs or you know towns, and when you have your council meetings, there are people that show up and say, "I don't like this, change it." But they're not saying, "I don't like this. How can I help you change it?" And so. Um, 
I think that we've softened this a little bit over time by showing that there's lots of people that will do a little bit of the extra work. Because I understand, you know, their tax base only allows for certain certain amount of uh, positions, and those people have regular jobs that they have to continue doing. So if there's some things that we can take on to better to make our neighborhoods better, um, but we do have to rely back on them. So you know, parks and rec. I have to, um, you know, Andrea, who is the director of Parks and Rec, um, she has come through to find some additional funding all of a sudden. And the Partnership for Better Health gave us an extra grant because we found out our bid was a little bit too high. Um, and it wasn't that the whole plan was scrapped. Everyone worked together to make to can make sure that this important thing continues to happen. Um, so yeah, I mean, from everywhere, from everyone from the mayor to Chris Varner, who is the Elm Street project manager, was on the podcast, Parks and Rec, the, um, the Downtown Carlisle Association, all these different groups come together to, for, to advance our town and make it a better place. Phil, I want to ask you about the role of, of neighborhood and, and neighborhood advocates, individuals who want to step up and, and do things. What, how are they perceived in, in Hoboken and, and Talk a little bit about leaving Andrew Price out of it because he's a crazy man. Uh, you know, talk a little bit about the ability of people to make a difference in Hoboken. Well, I moved to Hoboken when I went to Stevens Institute of Technology, and um, and there they have a, a service fraternity that does um, volunteer efforts. I know that a lot of students get involved in the town with the schools with the churches and all the different civic organizations. And so I've continued that um, post-college and including on like the Hoboken uh, city-sponsored green team right now. Um, one, one story I'm thinking of about people being involved with Hoboken involves the, the waterfront that I alluded to. Hoboken has uh, a mile stretch of the Hudson River and um, overlooking New York City. And in the early 90s, there was some development plans. Uh, I believe New Jersey Transit was involved and others. And um, the, the citizens really rebelled against uh, what they were planning on building along the waterfront. And there was a group called the Fund for a Better Waterfront that got involved at that time, uh, came together at that time. And since then, they've continued to hire their own architects and build their own plans for what they think should happen. The picture on the screen right now is of Pier A Park, which was opened 10 years later after Fund for the Better Waterfront got involved. And that in 1999, that park opened. And it, again, it provides the best views of New York City from anywhere um, in the world. And that has continued. The water has played a, a huge role in, uh, in Hoboken's existence. And we were seriously damaged and flooded by Hurricane Sandy in 2012. And we, we now have a very large uh, project that uh, thousands of citizens have attended meetings and gotten involved because we're attempting to build flood protection for the city and we have a $230 million grant from the federal HUD and so that's being spent by uh, New Jersey DEP and so that has gotten thousands of people out of their um, out of their living rooms on weeknights trying to stay involved with the city and figure out the direction of how we're going to spend that money and to protect ourselves from future floods. 
Rachel, I want to turn it over to you for a sec. I know you have a, a follow-up question. Go ahead. Yeah, so I'm really impressed and excited that both of you guys are like citizen activists. You know, we had a lot of people apply who were affiliated with their government, which is awesome. Um, and I'm glad that people's governments were getting involved in this. But it's also exciting to see people who are just excited and it's not their day job or it's only a part of their day job. So I was wondering if you guys could tell me about one person beside yourself that you see as a really awesome like neighborhood activist and you know something something that they did to make your town better. Um, Let's start with you want to start. I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Did you say me? Yes, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I will say, kind of. I'll go back a little bit. Um, so one of the, the things that I think uh, people don't think about is that they get involved and they're like, I'm going to do this one cleanup and I'm going to finish. But it sort of becomes like a, a snowball that keeps going. Um, so one person in town that I think a lot of people know is Elaine Livis. And she is she's actually now, you know, it sounds very official. She's the executive director of Project Share. And Project Share is a food bank in town. But for her, I mean, this started 25, 30 years ago. And she saw a need for certain, you know, for families in town that didn't have enough um, provided for them. And there wasn't as much um, of a base of resources for people. So she started by taking food in the back of her pickup truck directly to people's houses. And that's how it started 25 years ago. And, you know, and she cared so deeply about people. Um, and it, was a, it wasn't just about giving them food, it was about you know, connecting with them on a, on a, a human level and um, no matter what their circumstances were, that they are needed and they are cared for um, and food is just sort of the mechanism um, to, to do that. And so then that has grown into an institution um, and, and the whole town uh, you know, help support it from just this, you know, this past week, uh, there was the empty bowls um, that it's housed or it, it's it's hosted at Dickinson, but um, Carlisle Arts Learning Center uh, has the, an entire group of people that are just throwing pots. And so they create bowls and they paint them. They're all different. And then you go and you get, you know, you give the the donation. Um, so you get something and you're giving something. Um, and they're also housed in a, in a, um, part of this large or warehouse area at Dickinson and they pay $1 rent a year. Um, so it's sort of uh, one of those spaces um, that now they have a ton of people working for them and hundreds of volunteers. Um, but it, became, it started from one woman in it with a pickup truck, uh, some food in the back, she was going directly to people's houses. So um, that shows the evolution of just how far someone can go when they have a passion and they, they just want to make, they see an opportunity to make something better. Phil, how about you? Uh, some other person in the community that you can point to as being a, a really great advocate? I don't have a, a single great story like, like Brenda's story, but I, you know, I know that there's been a number of volunteer groups that have sprung up um, based on you know, citizens, um, their, their desires for their community, the um, you know, the Fund for a Better Waterfront that I already mentioned, the Quality of Life Coalition, uh, the True Mentors and Hoboken Volunteers groups are all some, some groups. And I will say, you know, 
quick shout out. Our, our mayor was a activist trying to work on parks issues, especially in open space issues. And I think that's kind of how she got her start. And so that's a success story. Jason, I want to switch back over to you. I, I know there's some more questions that have been submitted. Uh, can you pick one out of the group there? You bet. And uh, while we have Phil on, uh, Phil, this, this is a question directed uh, to Hoboken. It's pretty interesting from Kevin. Uh, Kevin asked, now I'd imagine the trans Hudson communities are blessed to be so close to New York City. Um, so you guys, you know, what makes Hoboken stand out from, say, Jersey City, uh, Weehawken, or some of the other communities here in my city? And how can Hoboken's success be attributed to proximity and love? Well, Hoboken stands out from the other cities uh, for a number of reasons. The first thing that comes to mind is that we have more more historic buildings that are intact. Um, as I mentioned earlier, that we were fully built out by 1910. Uh, the whole city had been pretty much uh, pretty much built by then. 70,000 people were living there, and a lot of that remained without getting knocked down uh, throughout the the 50s, 60s, and 70s when the town really was struggling. I think we were not. We probably, as a town, were probably not helps, but the um, so the town has where Jersey City has a great uh, downtown and a great historic district. There are so many parts of Jersey City um, that that the historic parts have been knocked have been knocked down. So Hoboken stands out for that, and then it's just it's just a small, tight knit community. So that. Um, that makes it different as well. Jason, I'm going to throw it back to you again. You have a, another question? I do. Uh, and this, this one's uh, more, more geared for, for Brenda. You know, Hoboken's talked about, you know, their recovery from, from Sandy, and it sounds like they've put some systems in place and are working on systems to recover from natural disasters. I'm wondering, what, what about the case of Carlisle? What have you done? And that's a question from Renee. OK. Um, well, at this point, one of the, well, one thing that we've done um, that was a change, which was not natural disaster adaptation by any means, um, but uh, the two main streets in town, Hanover and High, that cross at the square, um, used to be four lanes, two lanes each direction. Um, and a couple years ago, they did a lot of work to find a method to add in bike lanes and take it down to two lanes and then a turning lane in the center. Um, obviously, there's still some, you know, as any place, there's still some people that, you know, liked it better the old way. Um, but uh, the, the thing that we were, that I think Carla was trying to do was to um, have that cozy, comfortable downtown feel um, come back, allow pedestrians to walk more um, comfortably without feeling like it was a drag strip. Um, so that's one change that, that has been implemented. And then the other ones are more of the ones related to these factory sites. So there are two factory sites that have been torn down now. Um, one is 10 acres and the other is, I forget exactly how many, but it's at least double that. Um, and then the third factory is still in, uh, intact and it, they're trying to find a, um, a buyer for it. Uh, but with that become, comes opportunities. So it's not just about developing, putting in new uh, 
retail, new business, new homes. Um, it's also about trying to find opportunities to add additional connections. So continuing some of the bike paths, um, using uh, the the redevelopment of those spaces to add in stormwater management because there are, um, so we have the Latorte in town, which is our Latorte Spring Run, and then there's this underground waterway called the Molly Grub. A lot of people don't even know it exists. Um, but these are um, waterways that then, you know, sometimes things back up when there's, um, you know, a, a large heavy storm. So these are some opportunities that Carlisle has chosen to implement into the plans of the redesign. Um, and that way it helps with the developers paying for part of it, but um, it's also very incremental. So they aren't just, you know, taking on a whole bunch of debt right now just to get everything implemented. They're going out for grants, um, they're leveraging who has a contract or who's interested um, to kind of make all these things happen. Um, so there's many different moving parts and I think they've, you know, they've, they've done everything as well as they could. Um, they've opened it up to, to the public all along. So everyone is allowed to make, uh, you know, give their perspectives on what changes. Um, and so it is a lot of change and it's a lot for a lot of people in, in, in town to sort of take on, especially if you don't know a lot about infrastructure and zoning and all these changes. Um, but I, I see I see it as a really positive thing that's happening, and I can't wait to see what happens when it finally gets implemented. Jason, we're getting towards the end here. I, I want to give you a chance, if there's one more question uh, that we can put to our, our contestants here from the audience. Go ahead with that. Okay. Um, here's one that I, that I thought was pretty good. I'll maybe add a bit to it is, uh, you know, just asking about, uh, the communities uh, and their ethnic diversity, and, and I'm going to add uh, income diversity too. You know, so do you have some areas of town, you know, uh, downtowns or what have you, that are you know people of, of different backgrounds and, and and you know different incomes that that are meeting each other and having collisions and, and getting together, um, you know, in those in those areas or in the community in general. Let's start with Brenda on that one, Brenda. Sure. Um, so I live in a neighborhood that is very much a mixed income neighborhood. Um, it's also uh, so I mean, the northwest corner is sort of a neighborhood in its own. But then within it is a smaller neighborhood, which my house is just on the edge of it. Um, and it's the traditionally African-American neighborhood in town. So I mean, it's historically African-American. And so there's, um, you know, people have moved out of that neighborhood. Uh, and there, but that's why when I was saying about gen multi-generational families, a lot of the families in there um, are choosing to try to, you know, to live in, in, um, in walking distance of their families. Um, so we have that historic sort of uh, demographic, um, but then we also have um, our Greek community and we also have um, a Bosnian community. So that, and those were uh, a lot of um, people that came here during the refugee crisis. So um, one of my student employees here at the media center, uh, he's Bosnian and I've actually talked to him quite a bit. And he said about a thousand people or so within the greater Carlisle, maybe even Harrisburg region um, came, came here. And so there's a large Bosnian community, which I don't, you know, some people don't even know that that exists because, um, you know, it's a sort of a newer, you know, past 20 so years um, demographic. So there's definitely a, a great connection of different groups. Um, Hope Station is, is right in that uh, traditional um, 
area of our neighborhood and they put on a wonderful event every year that's called that's a juneteenth festival and so what i like about the other thing about Carlisle is that everything doesn't have to shut down the main street for it to be um, an event. It doesn't have to be at that level. So this is, you know, off the beaten, not off the beaten path, but it's a couple, couple blocks um, to the side. But then there's another event that, that um, is in May, and it's the Imani Festival. It's a multicultural festival, and it's just all the, any type of different culture that we can, um, you know, invite to representatives to sort of educate and have fun and it's music and it's food and it's dance um, and it's all sorts of wonderful connections coming together. Um, so I think I think for it, us being a small town in rural Pennsylvania, I think that we have a lot to offer in, in that area. Phil, I, I wanna give you a chance to weigh in on this one. Hoboken has a, a large diversity of of uh, different ethnicities and and of incomes, um, Hoboken has been known since the 80s uh, to be gentrifying, and many people would say now that it has been completely gentrified, and it's unfortunately too expensive and and not as affordable as it could be anymore. But that's a that's a function of its popularity. Everybody wants to to live there. That being said, we, we do still have um, several thousand units of, um, of public housing within the city. So uh, not, not that many cities um, have uh, such big housing authorities anymore. So we do have several thousand apartments um, for low income people. There's also some high rises that have been built specifically for medium income for, for some elderly um, populations. So there have been a number of, um, of efforts to retain uh, those people in the community. And one of the other uh, large factories um, in town is called Newman Leathers. Uh, it was built in the early 1900s and a number of artists have lived there over the past 20 years as, as low income housing. So. Um, Newman Leathers is getting a, a new redevelopment plan, and I know that the, the city is committed to trying to keep it as, um, as an artist community first and, uh, and trying to develop on the site other buildings to increase the diversity of uses there. So, um, so those are some efforts that, that the city has taken. Perfect. I, I, I'm going to give each of you a chance to make some final thoughts. But before we do that, I want to ask Rachel uh, to give us a sense of what comes next. We're going to have some voting. Where can people go to do that? When is that going to be over? And, and when are we going to announce our winner? Yeah, so as soon as this uh, webinar is over, I will open the voting on our website, and it'll just be at strongtowns.org slash strongest town. There will be a page to vote on the Carlisle-Hoboken matchup. Um, we'll let the voting go all the way through the weekend, um, Sunday at 11 p.m. Central. I will shut down the voting, and then Monday we will announce our winner. So it's been really, uh, really thrilling to hear from you guys and to hear from all the towns. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm impressed with how this has gone and with the with the participation. Phil, I'd like to give you a chance to just make some some final thoughts. Uh, on on Hoboken and and why people should cast their vote for Hoboken as the strongest town. Well, I think there's many of the ideas that uh, you've introduced me to, Chuck, uh, from from your strong towns principles. 
are implemented in Hoboken and they may not they may have been implemented by historical accident or by um, by wise governments throughout the years but we have narrow streets with slow car traffic everywhere throughout the city there's very few streets that you would consider uh, high speed and one of the streets that you one of those streets is being actively converted to a slower boulevard in order to encourage development on the other side right now so we are we are definitely uh, actively living these principles in addition I do think that we are one of the principles I learned from you Chuck is about incremental development that next allowing a neighborhood and a city to mature and I do think that Hoboken represents and shows a very mature uh, very very mature city that has been built out since 1910 and is still evolving a hundred and six years later fantastic Brenda I want to give you a, a chance at some final thoughts too uh, for people listening today, why why Carlisle? Um, well, I, I'll just say that uh, one of the funny things that I found when we went through this entire process and I would post out about, come on, vote for Carlisle, even the people that love Carlisle, they were like, I'm going to vote. Truckee has all these things, right? So I think that the, the thing that I, I want to dispel is like, you know, Hoboken, ah, you guys are big and wonderful and you're part of New York City, but not really. And, you know, so we can't compete if it's just apples to oranges. So you have to look at Carlisle um, as a small town that has like, it's kind of scrappy and, and, you know, we'll do what we can, even though we don't have all of, you know, this list of things when you compare us against all these other places. Is it beautiful? Yes, it is. Um, but, you know, we don't have tulips and windmills and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. But we still were able to to progress because we have people that love this place and believe in this place. Um, and. And like I said, because we don't have this one poster child that I can say, this is the thing that we're about. We're about so many different areas, big and small, big institutions and, you know, little tiny art installations that maybe you have to walk around town to sort of see the little birdhouse that some kid at Carlisle Arts Learning Center, Learning Center painted, but it's in that tree. You know, and so it's all these little tiny things that every single person um, that is in this town, whether they know it or not, somehow progresses Carlisle forward, um, be it through, you know, active work as, you know, sort of what I do and other neighbors, or more just sort of beating the drum of like, Carlisle is a wonderful place and just advocating and, and being proud of where they're from. And the reason why we are here in this final is not because I submitted a form back in February and forgot completely about it until you guys messaged me. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's because we sent it out and all those people hopefully that are watching i can thank them already so even if we don't win you know and hobo can win so i'm hoping we do but uh it's all because of our people and um we are the strongest town we believe no matter if this vote says it or not um because of all those people that have already come out of the woodwork they used to live here they're alumni from colleges uh, they know that one person that, that's from carlisle it doesn't really matter uh I'm happy that we're even sitting here today, uh, and thanks for letting us be here Hope and vote. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I have to say, when we started out this contest, I thought it would be a very interesting way to look at cities around the country, have a conversation about what made them great. 
I did not think that I would fall in love with a whole bunch Unfortunately, of we had a little bit of an audio problem at the end, but as you can imagine, Chuck did a great job of thanking the participants, reminding everyone to vote, and of course, encouraging everyone to keep doing what you can to build a strong town. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.